The title of this session is, How Do You Know? It's a small question with very big implications, I think. How do we know what we know? We've just been talking this morning about that knowing God is our salvation. So, and we talked about that there are different ways of knowing. What does it mean to know God? How do we know that we know God? How do we know that we're knowing him in the right way? How do we know what the truth is? How do we know what correct belief is? Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's hanging on a, a banner in our church sanctuary next door. It's also inscribed on the library at the University of Texas. I have a feeling that they may not read it quite the same way that we do. What is this truth that we're seeking that will set us free? Is it found in the UT library? Well, maybe there are senses in which principles and true things are there. Is that what Jesus was talking about when he said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free? So how do we know? How do we know what is truth? How do we know how to make decisions in our lives? How do we know who to marry, if to marry? How do we know what church to be a part of? How do we know where to live? How do we know any of these things? Is the pathway to discovering that truth found through accumulating as much data as we possibly can and then just sifting through it, you know, by process of elimination or if accumulating data is the pathway to truth, then Google is the pathway to God, right? It's going to get us. But I think we might agree that that's not going to get us closer to God. Amen. So we have to have some kind of positive assurance that we're finding the truth, don't we? Process of elimination isn't going to work. We can't say we just got to try all options and understand all data, and then we'll be able to find the best option. Is that a good way to find a spouse, for example? I'm sorry, I really like you, but I can't marry you yet because there's a lot of women I haven't met. And so there might be a better option. And so you can't navigate your life based on that type of omission, right? You've got to somehow be able to know with some certainty about key decisions, key understandings. How are we going to come to those, that knowledge? <clears throat> How do we know what we're thinking or we're feeling is from God? We're all believers here. We've at least established that we, we somehow know that it needs to be from God. We say, well, by the word of God. That's why he's given us the scripture. And amen, but whose interpretation? There are, I'm told, over 200 denominations of the Christian faith in the United States. The last thing I saw said there are now over 45,000 Christian denominations in the world. How do you know which one is right? Should we go with a majority consensus? Then we should all be Catholics. Should we consult uh, 
academia and the experts? Is that the pathway to truth? I had a conversation with a, a relative of mine, a great aunt of mine. She's passed away now. This was years ago. And I had a conversation with her one time, and she was a, a, a sweet lady, and um, she was a believer, but she was pretty entrenched in this, uh, what we talked about earlier, this idea that one cannot lose their salvation and, and so forth. And um, she, she was, you know, making some comments about her own daughter who was into all kinds of terrible things, and she was a lesbian and so on and so forth. And she said, my aunt said to me, she said, I just thank God that, you know, she prayed that sinner's prayer when she was six years old, and I just... It's comforting to me to know that, that um, you know, she's okay. And I, I tried to gently offer some scriptures that, that might bring that perspective into question in hopes that my aunt could come into a new level of burden to try to help her daughter instead of leaving it at that. And, and um, she said, oh, listen, Dan, I, I know, you know, but... You know, we, I can't really understand those things. There's people who've been to college, you know, and studied those things for years. And, and I, you know, so I've just got to go off of what they say. I said, well, you know, the issue we're talking about, there's people who've been to college for years and years that are on completely opposite sides of the issue. So which people that went to which college are we going to trust? I mean, that, that just breaks down at some point that, that the pathway to truth is somehow through... Uh, study of a certain type of intellectual exercise. So which interpretation of the Word of God are we going to go with? Well, we say we just need to, it needs to be the most reasonable one. But reasonable according to whose standards? Reasonable according to what presuppositions? Reason has to be founded on presuppositions. Reason in and of itself, as a standard for all of life, is not reasonable. Okay, what I mean by that is if you say, well, why should I trust reason as opposed to some other criteria? If we say, well, that because it's the only reasonable thing to do, then we've just reasoned in a circle, which is not reasonable. Okay, so reason always begins from a premise of something that is pre-rational that we are then reasoning because of this, therefore that. It has to be that way. So whose criteria are we going to reason from? From our own human perspective? How do we know what God's perspective might be? Let me read a few scriptures that I believe we all know well. Isaiah 55. The Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Proverbs tells us, Twice, actually. This is in two places in Proverbs. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end, in the end it leads to death. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that now we see in part, we know in part. He's confirming that we have a partial perspective. We can't see all sides of the issues. Romans 11 tells us, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? 1 Corinthians 2, Paul begins by saying, My message and my preaching were not 
with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is edging us towards some kind of answer, isn't it? To the question, how do you know? Proverbs 3 and 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. 1 Corinthians 1, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Really, those whole first two chapters of 1 Corinthians are on this topic. Colossians 2 and 8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Here's 1 Corinthians 2 again. No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The natural man does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness. Indeed, he cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Romans 8 tells us plainly, the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Now, we know all these passages. We probably would all agree here There's a lot of warning in Scripture, and there's more than these, about leaning on our own understanding, about trusting our minds apart from God. And yet, isn't that usually where we go? Or am I the only person in here that's like that? When we we turn to solve a problem, when we turn to try to understand something, do we not naturally incline immediately to our minds? to what appears reasonable or rational to us. It's our tendency, even as we know that it has dangers, isn't it? So the question I'm asking here is, why do we do that? Why do we initially turn to our intellect? Usually, we at least tell ourselves we're turning to our intellect over and above our our feelings, what might be called the heart. Because we don't want to be swayed by the way we feel about it. We want to know how it really is. So we need to divorce ourselves from our feelings and just analyze it with our brains. And that will get us closer to what the real truth of the matter is. Don't we tend to do that? My question is, why do we do that? Here's an interesting quote. The testimony of the Spirit is superior to human reason. You know who said that? John Calvin. Amen. I can agree with Calvin on that one. (laughs) Amen. But we so naturally turn to our natural minds. We say, well, that's probably culturally induced, right? We're saturated in a culture that prizes the intellect. 
prizes a certain kind of study. But why does our culture prize it? I think when we want to be in control, we turn to our minds. That's reflected in a lot of our uh, daily interactions. You know, when somebody's doing something that we think is dangerous or harmful, we say, we say, get a hold of yourself. You're not being reasonable. You know, we, your, your, your child does something that they shouldn't have done, and you said, you need to use your head. But truthfully, they probably were using their head. <laughs> right? They were just thinking about the wrong thing. So it's not a matter of using your head. It's a matter of what are you using your head for? But we, th we think in those ways, as if, uh, you know, that's somehow going to be our pathway to overcoming our, our baser nature, even when we have the good intentions, right? Somehow we're going to, by, by just thinking about it enough, we're going to figure out a way. That sounds a lot like a passage I'm thinking of now. Uh, with my mind, I serve the law of God, but something else is at work in my members so that I don't do the things that I want to do. So apparently our minds according to scripture, are, are not the pathway to defeating the flesh. We say, well, the reason we turn to it, Brother Dan, is because that's just the way we're made. Our minds are in control of everything else about us, all the other elements of our nature. But you know, that's actually not, even, even neuroscience disagrees with that proposition now. It used to be thought here until a few decades ago, that was kind of what the science told us even was that, you know, your, your rational mind is the command center of the brain and everything else, including your emotions and, and so forth, what we might call the heart, is subject to that. And yet, that's actually not the case. Neuroscientists tell us that, for the, to start off with, only 5% of the decisions that we make are reasoned at all. The rest of them are made in reaction or out of habit or from some other source, but we don't even consider, should I do this, should I do that? We do them automatically. So very little of our activity actually is being run through that rational cortex, the cortex part of our, our brain. There is a, a neuroscientist named Richard Cytoic, and um, he, he did research, I think this is back in the 80s, but he did research on this whole topic and kind of revolutionized the brain science at the time which it always, it always is kind of funny to me that we use our brains to study our brains. <laughs> there's a quote by somebody, and I didn't write it down, but there's a quote by somebody may remember, but it's that he said, um, if our brains were simple enough that we could understand them, we would be so stupid that we couldn't. <laughs> so I'm not so sure that that the study of neuroscience is ever going to achieve its intended goal. <clears throat> anyway, this fellow Cytoic, he said, actually, it turns out there is a, a system called the limbic system that is the emotional core of a person. And this, this system covers the entirety of your brain. And he said this emotional core functions like a valve that uh, determines what information is sent to your cortex for processing? What that essentially means is, it is your feelings that even decide what comes across the desk 
of your decision-making capacities. If you don't care about it, if you're not interested in it, if it doesn't strike your heart as relevant and salient, it doesn't even make it to the part of you that is conscious that you are even making a decision. So in that sense, it really is our heart that is the seat of motivation. It is our heart that controls us. The word emotion and the word motive are obviously connection, connected. Motion, what activates us, what motivates us and drives us, all comes back to how we really feel about it. <clears throat> so I can hear a protest here that, okay, so you're telling me that somehow my emotions are going to be the pathway to truth. Is that what we're saying here? Brother Dan, are you not aware that people have done all kinds of terrible things just because they felt like it, right? Sub their subjective emotions have given rise to all kinds of irrational outbursts and, and atrocities and terrible behaviors. And I could agree with you that it most indeed has happened. But we have to ask the question on the other side, which is more dangerous? Are subjective feelings controlled by the flesh? Or cold rationalism, divorced from feelings? If we turn to history for the answer to that question, it's enlightening. For example, the much-touted age of reason happened through the Enlightenment and so forth. In France, that turned into the reign of terror, where the streets were running with blood. That's where all of that reason ended up. Let me read you a few quotes about some of the worst atrocities in human history. These are German historians, Ali and Heim, on, on the Holocaust. They say, to a very large extent, the policy of annihilation of the Jews was the product of a rational argument taken to a mercilessly logical conclusion. The Holocaust was very logical. In fact, it was reasonable. Now, we kick against that because we have certain presuppositions that we're reasoning from. But if you change those presuppositions, the Holocaust was extremely efficient and reasonable to achieve certain goals based on presuppositions. They say atrocities of the Holocaust were the product of a rationalism in the service of practical policymaking, which inherently tends toward the abandonment of moral restraints. Here's a terrorism expert named Bruce Hoffman. He's written a whole book on what makes terrorists tick. He says, rather than the wild-eyed fanatics or crazed killers that we have been conditioned to expect, many terrorists are in fact highly articulate and extremely thoughtful individuals for whom terrorism is an entirely rational choice, often reluctantly embraced, and then only after considerable reflection and debate. They've thought a lot about what they're doing, and it makes a lot of sense. But they're reasoning from a certain position, aren't they? Here's a neuropsychiatrist, Henry Baruch, on disembodied intelligence, he calls it. He says, liberation from all emotional limitations by a pure and disembodied intelligence constitutes the greatest danger and gives birth to the most redoubtable monsters. Insanity, he says, should not be defined as a loss of reason. For we now know that excess rationalism 
lies at the root of the most formidable psychoses. These are historians George Krenn, and uh, he's a historian, psychologist Leon Rappaport on the Holocaust. Far from being irrational, the Holocaust can only be epitomized in terms of excessive rationality. An example of logical thought slipping the bonds of human feeling. Holocaust scholar Franklin Littell said, The Holocaust is to be remembered as a rational program planned, supervised, and justified by professors and PhDs. Okay, so can we just establish that to try to draw a dichotomy, a moral dichotomy between the heart and the head is false. That's a false dichotomy. We want to draw a line like this. You know, like, here's my heart. These are my feelings. We draw a horizontal line and say, can't trust this. Let's use our heads to control these dangerous feelings. But I'm suggesting to you that that is a wrong paradigm, that that line should be drawn vertically like this. Be more appropriate to say that there is a mind controlled by the flesh and a mind controlled by the spirit. There are emotions controlled by the flesh, and there are emotions controlled by the spirit. So the dichotomy here is between the spirit and the flesh. It's not between the intellect or the feelings. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is desperately wicked above all things. It's deceitful above all things. Who can know it except the Lord? We know that our hearts can lead us astray. Amen. But then Paul says in Romans 8... Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. Desire is a feeling. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Are you good with the concept of mind control? Does that scare you? A little bit? Okay, let me re repeat this last line. The mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace, but the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. So this is a control issue. Amen. So, if both our intellect and our emotions are fallen, capable of taking us in the wrong direction, if they're equally untrustworthy, can I repeat my question from before? Why do we have this strong predilection to trust our minds more than our hearts? <clears throat> John speaks to this question of how do we know when he talks about how we can know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. And he speaks about those who speak from the viewpoint of the world. He says the world listens to them because they belong to the world and they speak from the viewpoint of the world. But we belong to God, so those who belong to God will listen to us. So he's saying there are two perspectives, there are two 
worldviews that are at play here. Now let's talk a little bit about those worldviews. Those are typified uh, in, for, for millennia now. They've been typified in conversation by two cities, two cultures, Athens and Jerusalem. The Greek mindset of rational philosophy versus the Jewish understanding of how one comes to know the truth through a relationship with God. Tertullian uh, gave this, what is now a famous statement. He was commenting on Colossians 2 that we read earlier about beware of philosophy and the basic principles of the world that will cheat you. He says, Tertullian was in second, second century, I think. What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? He's a little strong on that one, huh? Our instruction comes from the porch of Solomon, who had himself taught that the Lord should be sought in simplicity of heart. Now here's Peter Berger commenting on Tertullian. He says about this statement, he says, The implied answer to his question, of course, was nothing. Athens has nothing to do with Jerusalem. One may say that the entire history of Christianity provides the answer to Tertullian's question, an answer quite the opposite from the one he himself implied. Athens has been an awful lot of things to Jerusalem. Adumbrating a world-shattering marriage of reason and revelation. That is human-centered rationality and revelation. He says, Indeed, one might even say with some justice that the history of Christianity has been, in essence, the story of the marriage of Athens and Jerusalem. Could I use the word adultery instead of marriage to put it in biblical terms? Amen. So the Greeks... We'll just briefly describe the Greek mindset, and we'll move on to the good news, okay? <laughs> so the Greeks' mindset was that objective detachment and analysis is the pathway to truth. That we can understand things best by removing our direct involvement in them, removing ourselves from relationship from that which we study, and observing and spectating. The Greek gods, the, which they saw as the ideal for their own behavior, they, they viewed them as viewing the world from afar. They were the Olympian gods. They went up on the heights of Olympus, and they were spectators watching the drama of mankind. Spectator sports came to us from, from this whole milieu of thinking. Right? Let's watch what's going on, and then we can judge from a distance. <clears throat> Analysis. Microscopic study. Okay, this requires, this mindset requires that we stand above and look down upon that which we would claim to want to know. Okay, now the word analysis, it literally means to unbind. It means to, to, to dissolve or to fragment or to take apart. This is just the opposite of what we talked about yesterday in terms of an approach to even the scriptures, an approach to our doctrines. Are we going to approach the truth as something to be divided up in little fragments to study by themselves? 
Or are we going to approach this in a way that can bring life and wholeness? Are we going to chop that tree into pieces and look at each piece? Or are we going to understand the pieces in the context of the life that they're designed to hold? Okay, now, you know I'm already, we're, we're talking about the scientific method here, right? Science seeks to understand everything through this type of analysis. Like if you, if you went to, uh, you know, lab in high school or whatever, what do you do? Well, you get out these uh, dead uh, cadavers of frogs or, uh, or earthworms or whatever. I never knew an earthworm could be so big until the, the, you know, the, I got those uh, frozen ones. But anyway, and you get them out and you, uh, you, you cut this dead thing to pieces and analyze the little parts and everything. But you're not studying a living creature. That's one of the reasons why it's been a little difficult for people to understand how the human body works because the only thing you can really study on is dead people because as soon as you start to dissect it, you kill it and then you're no longer studying life. You're studying death because you've changed the fundamental nature of the thing that you're attempting to know. Okay, this word, Brother Asi mentioned the scripture earlier today that the scriptures cannot be broken. You know that word broken is lesis in the Greek, analysis. It's the same word. The scriptures cannot be studied in this way if we would come to know God through them. <clears throat> Jesus would say, the kingdom does not come by observation. The kingdom is supposed to come inside of us. Science itself contradicts the notion that True knowledge can come through observation. I'm not going to get into this in depth, although I'd love to, but uh, I'm, I'm not competent to. That's one reason not to do it. And the second reason is we don't have the time, and I can see that nacho cheese working on you already. <laughs> <clears throat> but what they call the, the king of the sciences is quantum physics. A uh, quantum physicist once said that the rest of science is just stamp collecting. <laughs> Apparently, scientists are not above arrogance. <laughs> but anyway, uh, quantum physics is considered the king of the sciences, like as it's studying the foundational elements of everything that is, right? And yet, quantum physics have brought us what's called the law of indeterminacy. Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg, uh, came up with this law, they call it. I think it was in the 20s. And basically what the law says is, it's the law of indeterminacy, that it is in fact impossible to determine the behavior of reality all the way down to, in its subatomic levels. That, uh, that's sometimes called the uncertainty principle as well. And that in fact, this combines with the phenomenon where the observer who's trying to understand what's happening in this microscopic world affects the very thing that he's studying. So, for example, light can behave in different ways. It can, be, it can behave as a particle, it can behave as a wave, and the expectations of the observer would change what was going on in reality. So that as soon as you begin to study this side, that side changed. And you go back to study that side and the other side changed. I don't have the quote with me, but there's a quote from a guy who said, essentially, we, can, we can't even get quite halfway there in terms of trying to understand 
how the most basic elements of the universe work. So, that's where rationalism is going to get us, okay? And when we apply this rationalistic approach to God, we put God under the microscope. He becomes the God idea. We're going to talk about God. We're going to know about God, as we said earlier. Then we're, we've removed ourselves from the proper position in which we might understand. Perspective comes from position, doesn't it? My perspective of this podium is different than yours. I see this side and you don't. You see this side and I don't because we're in different positions in relationship to this. So our perspective is always framed as finite humans. It's framed by our relationship to the thing that we study. We like to overstand, not understand. <laughs> Amen. God is not going to be subjected to our microscope of overstanding. He expects us to come to him and let him teach us. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So our attitude of heart, humility, is going to be a key in our search for wisdom and truth, isn't it? Remember the Greeks on the Areopagus that Paul encountered in Acts 17? These guys were well studied, it seems. They were philosophers. It said they sat around doing little else but then to talk about ideas. Amen. But what happened when this babbler, as they called him, showed up with some new idea? What, what is this guy talking about? Amen. These guys had a hard time with it, didn't they? Especially when it got to something like the resurrection. Apply your rationalism to that one. Amen. Think about that for a second. Our whole faith is based on a very irrational, irrational thing, is it not? Does everybody in here believe in the resurrection? Did you come to that conclusion through rational thinking? Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> Objectivity is a myth. Don't tell the media I said so. Because that's how you get to fair and unbiased reporting, is through becoming objective. That's why it's all so fair and unbiased, right? It's because they're, they're so successful in becoming objective in the things that they report on. Objectivity is a myth. It's a lie. You cannot be objective as a human being. Only God sees things from all sides. Only God understands reality as it is. How old is this lie? It's as old as the hills. It's as old as the garden. This is the lie that you can be as God, knowing good and evil for yourself. You don't need to come into relationship with the God who does know it all in order to receive truth from Him. You can know it by yourself. Okay, so this is getting us really close to these two, to understanding what these two worldviews are, isn't it? And why it is that we always incline towards this mind. It's because we want to be as God. We see it in our carnal thinking, we see it as the pathway to control, to the pathway to lordship over our own lives, pathway to our own divinity, if we can stand above 
and know for ourselves. This, of course, in the garden is counterposed to the tree of life. The tree of life is to walk with God in the spirit of the day. To walk in relationship. Why did Eve fall for that fruit? Well, it says that she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. So there was desire involved, indicating actually an emotion. We fear our emotions because we want to stay in control. And we see the mind as the way to stay in control. Sometimes I think, that's not the right way to put it, especially since I'm bashing thinking right now. (laughs) What'd you think about that? (laughs) I'm not really bashing thinking, am I? We're saying, God, help us think according to your spirit. God, guide our thoughts into your thoughts. Amen. If we could just come to the point where we feared being in control because we saw who we really were and the evil that's at rest in all of us and that is capable, the capacity of that evil in us, then we would fear being in control instead of fearing being out of control and having God be in control, wouldn't we? It's because we want to retain our autonomy and our own lordship that we so fear... You know, if I get emotional here, I may not even know what I'm doing, and I can't, I can't do that. Well, if those are the wrong emotions, amen, let's get on top of them. Let's ask God to help us get on top of them. But if it's actually God moving upon us, let's not resist the Spirit of God. We trust our minds. Why do we trust our minds? Well, because what I just said, we fear losing control. Is fear an emotion? Maybe we trust our minds because of a certain type of intellectual pride. Is pride an emotion? What I'm trying to say is, it is the deceivableness of our hearts that lead us to trust our minds. Faith and trust is an emotional decision. Faith, by definition, is not just a logical conclusion based on all the scientific data we can muster, is it? It's something that we feel it's evidence of things not seen, as we heard earlier. You remember my loose paraphrase from yesterday. Uh, Trust in your own understanding with all your heart and lean not on the Lord. But we know what it really says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. It doesn't say trust in your heart. We don't trust our hearts. We trust in the Lord with our hearts. And we, lean, we should lean not on our own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him so that He can direct your path. Amen. When I, when I read that leaning, it always makes me think of the passage in, you know, the story in, in 2 Kings where the city was under siege and there was nothing to eat, and everybody was dying of famine. And then the prophet comes and says, tomorrow about this time, food is going to be everywhere, and it's going to be cheap. 
And then it says, so an officer on whose hand the king leaned, here's the voice of reason is going to come and analyze the word of God. Okay, the word of God has just come through the prophet and said, I'm telling you, tomorrow God is going to bring deliverance. But the voice of reason that the king is leaning on, of under, his own understanding, says, Look, if the Lord made windows in heaven, could this thing be? And the prophet says to him, It's surely going to happen. And you're going to see it. But you're not going to eat of it. And that guy was trampled in the gate the next day. That's the curse of leaning on our own understanding. It says in Jeremiah 17, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, which usually means trusting right here, trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. He shall be like a shrub in the desert and will not see when good comes. We're going to miss out on the most incredible things that God wants to do just because we lean on our own understanding. Thank you, Jesus. The Hebrew perspective, on the other hand, we've already said it, was that it is this relational connection with God that brings life and truth. Knowledge indeed we need to know Him and Jesus Christ whom He sent is eternal life. Salvation is knowing God, but what kind of knowledge is it? 1 Corinthians 8 says, We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know it. But whoever loves God, what? You remember? Whoever loves God is known by God. You almost expect him to say, whoever loves God knows God. And yet he turns it around and said, whoever loves God is known by God. This isn't a matter of me studying God. This is a matter of me coming into relationship with him and letting him know me. Paul speaks something similar to the Galatians when he says, how is it that you're so soon turning away? from God and, and being enslaved by these principles from the world after you have known God. Then he stops and corrects himself and says, or rather, since you have been known by God. What we're saying here is this, that love that comes from the heart is our door of access into the knowledge that saves us. The heart is first. There is a scriptural order when we come, that, that is given to us. We've been talking about some of the passages already in a different context. With the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. It is the heart that brings the access of the Spirit into our minds. In the first and greatest commandment, the first thing on the list is the heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And your strength. If we're unwilling to yield that seat of our emotions to God, is it not because we're trying to retain some grip on control of ourselves? Jesus said that God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
We want to draw a dichotomy between the spirit and the truth, as if there are kind of two elements that we can separate from each other. I'll read you real, real fast several passages here. John 16 says that the spirit leads us into truth. This is all answering the question of how do we know, isn't it? Jesus said, the words I speak to you are spirit in John 6. Of course, John 1 says that the word was God. John 4 says God is spirit. I already said that one. 1 John 5 says the spirit is truth. John 17 said his word is truth. Jesus said in John 14, I am the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But we cannot divorce the principles of truth from the personal being that is truth. The word that became flesh and dwelt among us. We've got to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We can't get out our Bibles and use them as a shield against relationship with God, can we? How do we know it's the word of God? Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God is living and powerful. If it's not alive, if it's not powerful, it may be a repetition of principles, but it's not the word of God unto salvation. People have been trying that for a long time. Somebody quoted it earlier. John 5, Jesus told the, the Pharisees, You search the scriptures, for in them you think, there it goes again, you think, you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you're not willing it's your will that's the problem here. You're not willing to come to me that you would have life. John 7, uh, Jesus had been speaking and the Pharisees sent the, the officers of the temple to go arrest him. And they came back not having arrested him and they said, why didn't you, why didn't you grab him? And they said, nobody ever spoke like this man. Apparently when they got in the presence of the living and powerful word of God, they said, this is something different. This is not just some new idea. What did the Pharisees say in response? They said, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Let's appeal to the experts. Let's appeal to our superior knowledge. You know, the flesh is not, is not above taking the opposite approach when we need to defend ourselves from God. Not having enough education can be a reason not to listen to someone. But remember what uh, Festus said to Paul, who was very educated. He was one of these Pharisees. Uh, he's, Festus said, when Paul made his defense, the scripture said, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning has made you mad. <laughs> anything to dismiss the word of God but all this that was going on with the Pharisees that Jesus had to come against so much this trust in their study, study, study analyze, analyze but not coming and feeling nobody spoke like this man what is God doing this mindset that he was coming against this was a well entrenched Greek rationalism that had already swept Judaism centuries before. This Talmudic tradition where they were already entrenched in this, they said 
they, they were proud of this fact. They said, the scholar has replaced the prophet. God went silent for centuries, remember? They said, the scholar has replaced the prophet. God moves in different ways now. You know, he used to move through prophecy. He used to move through the gifts of the Spirit. He used to, but all those things have passed away. Thank God there's not doctrines like that anymore in evangelicalism, is there? All those things have passed away. Now God speaks to us through our brains. And the scholars have replaced the prophets. God forbid. They actually had a position where they said that if, God, if a voice spoke from heaven that was contradicting the conclusion of the rabbis, we wouldn't listen to it because we know that God has already given us the Torah for our study, and now it's in our hands to do with as we please. That was their stated position. Okay, I can still hear a little objection here that says, and I, I mentioned this yesterday, I'm afraid, but we can't exalt subjective human emotional experiences above the word. I can agree with that. If we're talking about emotional experiences that are controlled by the flesh. In other words, if we're exalting our fear or our pride or those other fallen emotions above the word, let's not do that. But can we also agree that we should not exalt our human intellect above the word of God? Goosebump theology. I have a note here about that. You ever heard of that? Goosebump theology, that just means whenever, whoo, if I feel it, then it must be God. <laughs> there is a deeper reality than that, and we're getting there, okay? But that, those types of derogatory things are then used as a, as a shield. We can't get into that. We can't, we can't go down that road. Crazy things happen. People might think you're drunk, Okay? In John 9, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I, I just will resist the temptation to read you the whole story. Jesus heals the man that's born blind from birth. Okay? And uh, the Pharisees immediately come to a rational conclusion because he's done it on the Sabbath, and we know the law of God. So they say, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And we have studied and studied and studied. We know all about the Sabbath. We know all about what God says. So we can clearly conclude that this miracle worker is not from God. So they call the man who's blind and they asked him, how did he do that? Because we know it wasn't God. <laughs> they have to ask him three times because they're never happy with his answer. I think it's the second time that they call him and they say, they say to the man, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. <laughs> let's glorify God by making categorical statements about what we know <laughs> the man answered and said whether he is a sinner or not I do not know one thing I know that though I was blind now I see how do we know they retorted we know that God spoke to Moses but as for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. And he comes back with a very 
wonderful answer. I won't read the whole thing. But he said, well, this is quite something, you know, that's never happened. Somebody's opened the eyes of someone born blind, but you don't even know where he's from. Hmm, wow, you guys are really learned. <laughs> they don't take kindly to it. They answer again and they say, you were completely born in sins. Which is another assumption, right? The disciples had the same assumption that, Lord, you know, was it this man or was it his, his parents? You know, obviously it was one of those. You know, it's got to be A or B. That's how we approach God a lot of times, isn't it? Well, Lord, we know it's got to be A or B, but we know we can't quite tell which one it is. So we're going to appeal to you to answer us according to our frames and tell me, God, you have two choices, A or B. And Jesus says neither. But it was for the glory of God. God was, in fact, being glorified. These guys are saying, give glory to God. He's being glorified in front of their eyes, and they can't receive it because of their preconceived frames that they say are from God, from Moses, who we know is from God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So they answer the fellow and say, you were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us, clearly implying that we know that we weren't born in sin. You were. I would like to suggest to you that we are, we're all going to encounter things from God that challenge our frames and our past experiences, even as believers. That's what was happening to these people. They were believers in God. And yet God was moving in a way that they had not anticipated that they hadn't seen before. It was like, God can't do that. I've already decided that he moves only within the frame that I have already understood or experienced or, or whatever, agreed with. And, and God is not allowed to break those bonds with my approval anyway. Thank God that the apostles didn't think that way. Did the apostles ever encounter situations that that pulled them out of preconceived notions? Even after they've been filled with the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, this thing happens with Cornelius <laughs> that is outside of their framework. I mean, reading the Old Testament, it's pretty clear. God's chosen people and the Jews and the Gentiles and all this, they hadn't, their eyes hadn't yet been opened to all the revelation that was actually there all along in the Old Testament even. They just hadn't seen it yet because they were clinging to a certain type of faithful obedience to certain principles as they had understood them. And then when God begins to move and sovereignly opens the door, even the apostles, you know, the, Peter flows with it. Praise God for the Peters among us that will just follow their hearts. Amen. When they feel God. Peter flows with it and, and receives this from God and this Cornelius and his whole household are filled with the whole Holy Spirit and but then he comes back and, the, and he has to give answer. But thank God they didn't just reason their way through it that day. Did they? There were questions. It's fine for us to have discussions. That's what we're doing here. Amen. To say, yeah, but what about, what about this verse? Or what about that? And that's okay. As long as we have a baseline commitment that we're going to follow the Spirit wherever it takes us. Thank you, Jesus, that our hearts are going to be open 
That even if God wants to show us something we've never seen before, we're not only okay with that, it's what we want. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to give in to temptation for just a moment here. Is that okay? Uh, on my question here, is it, is it better to exalt human intellect and scholarship above the word? I have this delicious quote that Brother Zach shared with us, and I've just, I'm going to blame it on him, but I've got to read it to you. This is Kierkegaard. Okay? He says, The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? <laughs> dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. <laughs> you see why I couldn't resist that. <laughs> Sola Scriptura, we will say. That's a Texan interpretation of the Latin. Sola Scriptura. <laughs> we have to define what we mean by Sola Scriptura, don't we? Because I would like very much to agree, sola scriptura, if we mean that we're going to place the, word, the written word of God above any of the writings or opinions or teachings of men, above the, the church fathers or the church councils or what's, you know, the popular authors of today or whatever. Let's, let's, let's take only the Bible as the standard in that sense. But if we mean by sola scriptura that we need to divorce the scriptures from relationship with the spirit that inspired and wrote those scriptures, then I disagree. Those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. We can't take the book and divorce it from its author and do with it as we please and, and call that a virtue. Satan quoted scripture. To Jesus, right? I mean, Satan, he, he, had, he knew his Bible pretty well, it turns out. I don't even think he misquoted any of it. Or did he? He didn't misquote, but it was a, a little out of context. It wasn't the word of God to Jesus in that moment, was it? But it was the Bible. So how do we know when the Bible is the word of God? Unless there's some other kind of witness that goes beyond principle. Separating the truth from the relationship with the author is idolatry. We make an idol even out of the written word if we do that. It's like the brazen serpent. You remember? God told him to make this brazen serpent and, he, and, he, and so according to his word they did it and it brought healing and everything. But then they held on to that thing and they worshipped the serpent. 
So later in the time of the kings, we see that they had to go destroy the brazen serpent because people were worshiping the serpent instead of the God who told them to, to use that serpent to overcome a plague. Amen. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Thank you, Jesus. We've got to relate to God as a spirit. We, too, are spiritual beings. Romans 8 tells us the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Proverbs 20 says, The spirit of a person is the lamp of Yahweh, searching all the innermost parts of his being. We have to relate to God spiritually and not just intellectually. He is a spirit. So I'm wrapping up here. I only have 15 pages left. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to we're going to come to know the truth when all of it comes together. Our hearts, our minds, our spirits and our souls. There's going to be a resonance of wholeness. Amen. What the Spirit speaks is not going to contradict the written Word of God. And the written Word of God does not contradict what the Spirit is doing. Amen. They've got to come together. And when they do, and you feel that synthesis that brings life, we know we're hearing from God. His Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit. Gandhi once said that happiness is when what you say, what you think, what you do are all the same thing. There's a harmony in your being. The unity of spirit and truth. <clears throat> Thank you, Jesus. Can I show you something about harmony real quick? Is this guitar turned on? You guys have the capacity to run that? just a tactic to keep you awake. <laughs> Is it on? Ah, the volume. This one here. Got it? Okay. So I want you guys to analyze this note. Okay? Put on your analytical thinking here. Y'all feel good about that? <laughs> Everybody hear that? Yeah. Is there anything wrong with this note? the rest of the chord there's a lot of math in music actually you know you can analyze it and you can study that you know that's this many vibrations per second and it's, it's actually fascinating to study it but people who are completely unmusical can tell you something's wrong with that 
Amen? And what, part of what I'm saying here today is that's how the truth is. And that's why we've got to judge the truth in a context of relational wholeness. We're not going to be able to even discern whether this piece of truth is right or if this be of God or if it not be unless we've got a harmony of wholeness within which to incorporate it or to discern its dissonance. Thank you, Jesus. Even babies can discern that. Seriously. They've done brain scans on newborns, however that works, and they can tell that a newborn baby who knows nothing else is offended when they hear that note. <laughs> we can hear the voice of truth. I mean, how did you know that except that God has put something into us? He has created us to be able to feel harmony and resonance and to detect that inconsistency is a bad thing and that, that, that it leads to death. There's got to be a consistency that brings harmony that's not only not offensive, it's beautiful. It stirs us. Music is a wonderful analogy. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus said in eight, John 18, when he stood before Pilate, everyone who belongs to the truth hears my voice. It's possessive terms, controlling terms that he uses. In John 8, he says, whoever belongs to God hears what God says. He's answering uh, a question he himself had just asked, which is, why don't you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Why is my speech not plain to you, he says. Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. There's a relationship that's missing. If you'd get the relationship right, you'd hear from God, and you'd know that it was, in fact, God. I already quoted you 1 John 4, which draws those implications out and, and connects them to the body. They are of the world. They speak from the viewpoint of the world, so the world hears them. We belong to God. He who knows God hears us. He who does not belong to God, it's exactly the same construction as John 8. He who does not belong to God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Is there an ear for God? John 7, Jesus says, this is key. If anyone wills to do his will, then that one shall know concerning my teaching or concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. That's just your opinion. That's just your idea about the Bible or whatever. Jesus says the key to knowing whether it's someone's idea or whether or not it comes from God is the position of our own will. Whether or not we are surrendered unto God in ourselves. Whether we, have, we are living and hearing from a position that says, not my will, but your will be done. I have determined First of all, to do his word and his will, no matter what it is. And this has opened my ears so that I can now know what it is. We want it to be just the other way, don't we? We want to first understand, well, I mean, if I knew it was God, I'd be willing to do it. I just don't know if it's God or not. I need to know if it's God so that I can know if I'd be willing. Jesus says it's the other way around. Something has to be willing to let go 
of that analyzing, judging, figure it out ahead of time mindset and say, Jesus, I trust you. I know enough of you. I have come into enough relationship with you that I trust you much more than I trust myself. And I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm willing, God, speak your word and I'll do it. And in that surrendered place, as we offer ourselves, as was said earlier, as a living sacrifice, then we will know what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. How do we know? It's the position of our hearts. It's whether or not we are surrendered, whether or not we are willing, whether or not we belong to God. These are ownership, covenant, marriage kind of terms. Thank you, Jesus. John 10, we talked about this one too. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. We already talked about it, but you know, no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. But are you a sheep? Because he, said, he goes on to say, they don't follow strangers. Because they don't know the voice of a stranger. That sounds like that string I was playing for you. That doesn't resonate. But my sheep know my voice, and they follow me. So I'm going to end with just a couple of passes. Well, couple is a euphemism. <laughs> I'm going to end with just a few passages of Scripture to make, like, what is my final point here? That understanding is a question of the heart. Whether or not we understand is a heart issue. Jesus and Paul both quoted Isaiah. In them, the prophecy of Isaiah is filled, fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn. That's a repentance term. And turn so that I should heal them. In Mark 8, this is where the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus says, beware of the leaven. And it says, and so they reasoned among themselves and said, it's because we forgot to bring bread. And Jesus said, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? In Ephesians 4, Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Viewpoint of the world. In the futility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened. How has this happened? This futility of the mind and this understanding being darkened. Being alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Who being past feeling, the word in the Greek there is apathy, no feeling. Past feeling had given themselves over to work all uncleanness. Okay, so did you follow the progression there? That this futility of the mind, this darkening of the understanding comes from being alienated from the life of God because your heart was blind. But you have not so learned in Christ 
If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, their minds were blinded, Paul says. To this day, the veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Here's the spatial terms again. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Paul prays for the Ephesians. I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. To know a love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What is he saying here? What he's saying is, this is a promise. As we said before, this is not a threat. To the flesh, it's a threat. You're going to lose control. You're going to be out of your mind. Paul said he was out of his mind. You'd hate to be like him. Amen. It's going to, whoa, this is scary stuff. That's because God wants to take control. This is not a threat. This is a promise. There is a full measure of the love of God that only comes when we're willing to yield, to know these dimensions that are beyond our human understanding. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to his power that is at work in us. To him be glory in the church. Philippians talks about the peace of God that passes our understanding and will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So I'll end with two things. One we've already talked about. When Paul was on the Areopagus combating this viewpoint of the world, this Greek philosophy, these guys that said, he said, I perceive you are very religious. We want to think that Greek philosophy is this, you know, this pagan thing. We don't do that. We do Jesus Greek philosophy. (laughs) They're very religious. I perceive you're very religious. You've got all these objects of worship. But then there's this one that's not subject to your carnal minds. They labeled it, this is the unknown God. For some reason, he he never fits under our microscope. For all the study, we we can't know him. He said, him whom you worship without knowing, I proclaim to you. Amen. And then he goes on to say that God has, he's determined the boundaries, the habitations, the times and seasons. He's determined all of this for one purpose. That you might seek after the Lord. That you might feel after him. And find him. He doesn't say think after him. He says feel. The word means to feel. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Though he's not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. It's not that far away. This yielding to God, 
Thank you, Jesus. We were made to feel him. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Unfortunately, they, most of them rejected him, didn't they? It did say that some of them believed. Some of them said, uh, we'll hear you again on this matter. Let's, let's insert the insulation of a little time to think about it. Paul never went back. They didn't hear him again. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I'll just end with referencing back to what Brother Kevin shared with us yesterday. How do we know that it's God? The disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. You remember they were walking along and they were talking to each other, struggling over what does this mean? What all this has happened? You know? And then Jesus shows up in this form that they did not recognize. I'm sure if it was Jesus, I'd recognize him. I've seen him before. Don't be so sure. <laughs> Amen. Let's let Jesus define what Jesus looks like. Amen. So this man shows up with him and he says, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? And they said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on here? He's like, what things? You know, He's the only one that does know what's going on. Amen? So there's, there's different kinds of knowing going on here. Amen. So they begin to tell him, and they say, we thought, we thought he was going to be the one to deliver Israel, and now this has happened and, and, and all this, and it's, it's but, but we have heard that now people are saying that he appeared to this one and he appeared to that one, and we just don't know what to think. And what does he say to them? He says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the things that the prophets have said. And then he begins to explain the scriptures to them as they go along the road. Thank you, Jesus. And it's, it's as Brother Kevin, I believe, said to us yesterday, it seems intentional. It seems intentional that Jesus did not appear to them in the form that they immediately recognized according to the flesh. As if he was checking to see if they could hear his voice, no matter who was talking. Amen? Because then as he, he, he speaks the word of God to them from the scriptures, and then it says he made as if he was going to go on. And that's the scary thing, isn't it? That the Lord doesn't strive with us forever. That he speaks to us and he's waiting to see if we can hear it, if we see it, or if our hearts are too dull. And these moments of truth arrive when he makes as if he would go on. And it says, but they constrained him and said, no, actually, would you come closer? Would you come into our home? And break bread with us. And then when they broke bread, their eyes were opened. They, they saw it. After they responded to something else that was going on. Amen. And you know what they said after he disappeared. They said, did not our hearts burn within us? 
when he talked with us along the road and opened the scriptures to us. Thank you, Jesus. That's how they knew it was him. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. How do you know? Does your heart burn within you when you hear the word of God? When the scriptures are being opened, do your mind and your heart and your soul and your spirit reach out in this harmony of union and love for God? Thank you, Jesus. It's not something else if you're feeling that. Thank you, Jesus. It's him. It's the voice of the shepherd. Let's follow him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.